Layers gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Sinkhole, Nelloid, Jazam Dijin, and many others battling head to head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common to uphold the legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToAMagic.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Questions and Kappas. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access to all sorts of bathroom banter and anecdotes about death and taxes. I'm going to shout out our new patrons, and these are just the folks who have joined since the last time. It's a long list. We've got Rick V, Rob D, Quentin R, Robert B, Russell H, Graham B, Spencer B, Dennis A, Martin S, Troy W, Matt D, Pipsqueak, just Pipsqueak, shout out to Pipsqueak, Nathan H, Christopher R, Max F, The Buffalo Chicken Dip Legacy Tournament Series, Rayleigh S, Ken R, Chris O, Paul K, Brendan B, Jake C, Henrik K, Colton M, Carlo A, Austin L, William, Sam B, and Rain V. That's like 30 people. Thank you all, and I hope to see more of you in there in the coming two weeks. The support feels really good. Like, it gives me warm and fuzzies uh, that, like, this this podcast is, is, is growing and becoming something that, you know, actually is going to consistently, like, pay the editor and uh, maybe, maybe give us a little something. Maybe, uh fund some merch or something like that in the future shout out to all of you and those of you coming in the future see you soon all right so beginning tonight um we're actually going to start with a patreon selected topic um some of our upper tier patreon folks um chris in particular um gave us some really great questions and we decided to turn it into an entire section of the episode here so we're going to take two questions the first is what do you think of this tier list? And this tier list refers to a legacy tier list made by uh, Matthew Vuk, aka Ozymandias172 on Twitter. And he puts together kind of his own monthly thoughts on legacy in kind of a long form post, pretty readily accessible if you want to check it out. But just kind of reading off the top three tiers here, Matt places Blue Red Delver in S tier, the Jeskai Days Undoing Control deck, Green White Depths, and Lands as well as the four-color Uro control deck and death and taxes in an A tier. And in B tier, there's the eight-cast deck, or the Kappa Cannoneer deck, whatever you want to call it, Doomsday, Elves, and Reanimator, and there's a bit more from there. And the reason we actually select this as an episode topic is because we wanted to talk about the ideas of tier lists, like just generally speaking. What are they good for? You know, that sort of thing. When are they drawing on data? When are they gut feelings? What are they useful for? We actually wanted to use that as a starting point for a discussion. So gentlemen, where do we want to start? I want to start by shouting out Matthew's continued work on the legacy format. His tier lists are well-reasoned. Next to the tier list, there's notes that defining like his thoughts about each tier since it's a running thing that he does every month he actually notes like lands is in a it's up from b and like doomsday is down from a to b this month and that's a lot of work and really cool stuff so shout out to matthew for all of that work yeah he's he's done some great work uh with a handful of archetypes uh four color loam in particular comes to mind when i when i think of him but he's he's got a good range as as a pilot as far as people i could get a tier list from he's a good starting point he is now what do we think about tier lists in general like what does a tier list actually tell you does a tier list where blue red delver is the S tier? Is that telling you, chuck your deck in the trash, play Delver if you're serious? Is that what we get from a tier list? Uh, is it if you're below A, you're wasting your money? What what are we actually getting out of a tier list when we look at a thing like this? Uh, that's, that's a really tricky question and kind of like the 
crux of why I wanted to talk about this on the cast because tier lists conceptually can be like really good for like roughly figuring out like what is your deck's positioning. Let's say you are, I'm a punch down on you, I'm sorry, but like let's say you're a pox player, right? You know where you're at on the tier list, right? You know that what you're doing isn't the most competitive thing. That's not why you're playing it. You're playing it because like you love that play style or you've been playing this deck forever and you want to continue playing it. You can probably get some realistic information about your deck from a tier list. If your deck even made the tier list in the first place. I have a few quick thoughts here. Oh, sorry, I thought you were done, go, Phil. No, no, if you got quick thoughts, go. All right, so the first thing I think that a tier list provides you is if you're an average base level player, what deck gives you the best opportunity for success? So you can quickly look at a list and say, hey, Blue Red Delvers on top, this is probably the best deck in the format. So I think generalizations like that are pretty good. And then the second thing I wanted to mention is overall metagame percentages, what you can expect to face. Uh, they're usually pretty good for that. So if you're looking at a tier list, you go, oh, Blue Red Delver must be really popular what deck beats Blue Red Delver, I could switch to that. So that's where you get the lands and other decks that might be in tier B or tier A. And these are really helpful to someone who, for example, was recruited to in the legacy seat for SCG Con Indie that happened last weekend. And a lot of people who don't usually play legacy were pulled into playing legacy. I remember sort of today while I was... Uh, Passing some time scrolling Twitter, I, I saw a post from a like mid-level pro uh, that was just like, this is the 75 I played Nindy. I recommend it strongly. And it was just stock Delver. And I was like, oh yeah, you recommend that, do you? And, and like, it's easy for me to say who records Legacy, uh, sometimes two leagues a day. And I think about Legacy when I'm not recording it. And people in the space where you're listening to a Legacy podcast, like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. But if you are actually like, this event's coming up, SCG Con Pittsburgh's coming up, Dallas is coming up, there's big legacy events happening, and I don't know what this format is. A tier list is gold. It's kind of like a sideboard guide to the format where uh, it, it's just an easy roadmap if you don't know what's going on. And I think these things are really useful. Take everything in your S, A, and B tier. If, if you don't know the format, those are the decks you're proxying up. That's your gauntlet that you test against, right? If you don't know something very well, a tier list can be a quick way to say, hey, these are the things that I should care about. These are the things that are on my radar. These are roughly, roughly how good they are. I think it can be useful in, in that sort of thing. I think it's very difficult to lump these things into tiers, and a lot of times the tiers can be misleading. So, for example, Death and Taxes is listed as an A-tier deck here. Brian, would you hand Death and Taxes to an inexperienced player in your, like, legacy three-person, like, team constructed event phil i would not do that no would you be comfortable handing blue red delver to someone more comfortable than death and, death and taxes but still there i know there's a lot that the tier list is not doing right so like this tier list is never going to tell the whole story right and if you are a deck specialist you know let, let's say you're julian you can show up to an event playing elves you're you're gonna do pretty well with at that event regardless of what tier elves is in right like, just because you can leverage your your skill and experience and just your thousands upon thousands of games. So even if a deck might be better, if you're a specialist, you might really be a tier higher in terms of, like, your peers because you just have all of that experience with a deck and you just know every everything in and out from mulliganing to sideboarding to, like, macro matchup approaches. Right. I'm in the Patreon right here, intro, uh, sorry, Brian, I'm about to compliment you. You should let me do it. Uh, in our Patreon intro, we talked about our magic updates, and Brian's been on an absolute heater with the Epic Storm lately, boasting a 70 plus percent win rate lately, uh, second place in multiple challenges. And Matthew's tier list has the Epic Storm at the top of the C tier, just under Reanimator at the bottom of the B tier. And like, is the average the Epic Storm player uh, boasting a 74 percent win rate? I don't think so. I, I think the Epic Storm in the hands of Bryant is. A tier, probably. In the hands of me, it's middle D tier. Like, uh, this is a moving target, for sure. Any one of these decks is going to require uh, some skill. And as far as, like, a blank canvas, just, like, some warm body who understands how the magic rules work in your legacy seat at Star City Indie, I would probably be looking at, like, Reanimator, maybe as, like, or maybe even 8-cast, which are both in Matthew's B tier as, like, kind of consistently B tier. Like, I'm looking at, like, the skill floor and not that those decks play themselves like please don't be offended 
reanimator players there's i know ew landon is on a different level than most mortals but like as far as like i'm just gonna jack this up like doomsday and reanimator are both in the b tier but handing doomsday to your rando from the store versus handing reanimator to your rando to the store you're gonna land in a different spot it's just a fact i will say this you're talking about giving the deck to somebody at one of these team events the metagame for every team event i've in my experience is drastically different than what used to be a regular open because you do get so many people that normally wouldn't play but they're like i'm here with my two friends from my local game store we needed somebody to play legacy so it's just drastically different i think you're you'd actually get less blue red delver but you get more reanimator burn budget decks so i'm sorry phil i know that you disagree with this but in my experience there's more death and taxes at these events because D oh god you're right you're so right it's a thousand dollars so affordable it's so lendable so you do see more death and taxes even though it might be out of their skill range just because the price point that's part of playing paper magic which is pretty different than online magic i don't want this to spiral into another paper metagame versus online metagame discussion but a lot of people do know a legacy expert and that person's going to do the best for their team, which does sort of bear out as a normal looking metagame. But yeah, you are going to see like in the early rounds, some more reanimator or burn than you normally expect for sure. All right. Uh, so I'd like to play bad guy for a minute because I mean, that's what I'm good at. Let's be honest. And I'd like to talk about some of the negative things of tier lists. So Matt does a terrific job. And I think Matt actually has the best tier list that I see because like sometimes people post tier lists for cloud on twitter without any actual data or anything like that behind them matt uses challenge data to come up with his tier list they're not just personal opinions i respect matt's opinions a lot because they're backed by data and that means that i can trust them more so i appreciate that but a lot of tier lists you see aren't always based on that data and it leaves me wondering what's even the point so Matt's, like I mentioned, tier lists are based on challenge data. So we have a Saturday challenge and a Sunday challenge. The Saturday challenges are usually typically small. After they were announced again, they were like 64, 67. The last one dropped down to 45 and they've been trending downward. They're not super huge events. So the way that the challenge tracking collective by uh, Joseph Dyer and his team, I believe that they weigh the challenges equally which I feel like is almost a little bit of a disservice. Like, I'd almost like to see Saturday Challenge data separated from Sunday Legacy Challenge data, just because, like, you winning a 40-person event is very different from the 80 to 90 that we would get on a Sunday. Like, it, it just doesn't feel like they should be equal weight. Perhaps you disagree with me, and that's okay. I'm all right with that, too. It's not a big deal. But I do feel like if a deck consistently top eights a 40 person but doesn't ever top eight the 90, it says something more to me about an inbred meta than anything else. Because when events are that small, you're able to target certain people or decks that you wouldn't be able to do in a larger field. So it's just a, a little bit of a different ball game. That and individuals matter so much more. So if you're a shark in small waters, you're more likely to be a big fish, right? Like, I guess that's a bad analogy because you're a shark but like you know what i mean like you're more likely to do well if you're one of the better players in that small pool a shark is a big fish exactly that's why i was a bad analogy you brian it. i appreciate you uh <laughs> but like yeah like so, so like individuals like jpa they're legacy monsters like of course jp is going to top eight every saturday he's just like one of the best players in the field so it just makes perfect sense. And I think the last thing, and then I'll stop rambling for a second and take a breath, is there's no league data in these events. They're just two challenges every weekend that they collect the data. And we don't have this league data because Wizards won't share it with us. So we get this like watered down, distorted goldfish data. And I think even though I don't value it as highly, league play matters a little bit. I do think that challenge data matters more, but I think you can't just completely exclude leagues. Despite how many rotten reanimator and hull breacher and Karn players are in there, I'm sorry, Phil, I didn't mean to attack you like that, but they're people too, and those decks do matter at least a little bit. All right, so one thing that I want to just get back to from the very beginning of what Bryant was saying there is that these are based on data, and I think a lot of tier lists and power ranking sorts of things just like aren't based on data, they're based on gut feelings i'm just gonna like call out channel fireball here channel fireball puts out a lot of articles that are like power rankings on x format by 
pro and a lot of times i look at those and i just wonder like what is this based on you're a good player i respect you as a play like player where is where is the data how much of this format are you invested in when you put out a vintage tier list do you know what you're talking about sometimes i really wonder where is this coming from how much can i actually trust what i'm looking at and i feel like many of the random tier lists that you're going to see people just posting on twitter or in youtube on their like super clickbaity titles like you won't believe what's s tier i really think you have to question where some of the stuff in the tier list is coming from if it's not immediately obvious and intuitive yeah that's definitely a reasonable take the thing that i want to bring up is my favorite thing to say to my friends when they're telling me a legacy bad beat story is i just shrug and say we're all playing legacy so matthew's tier list has oops all spells at the top of d oops all spells will occasionally just shit murder delver in the s tier and if you're gonna be of the opinion of like i chose the s tier deck you you chose this d tier nonsense and and you just beat me shrug we're all playing legacy every deck on this list is good every deck on this list is full of design mistakes welcome to legacy and that's an important thing to keep in mind i had a pretty similar conversation with a friend recently where we were talking about whether or not you were more likely to have success in legacy or modern with your brew let's say you just like create this deck you want to play it you want to enter a league which format are you more likely to do well in and i think the answer is actually modern uh, because i think modern is a lower power level format so some of your sweet ideas might be a little bit more forgiving or legacy i think every deck that sees league play for the most part is secretly a killer i know we like to make fun of pox and nick fit but like those are well-tuned machines even nick fit nowadays is like okay turn three ugin you know what i mean like they're it's powerful it's just like it's fun to make fun of the veteran explorer deck but they're still like really really brutal decks and i think if you just brew up some like black green rock deck you're likely to get your teeth kicked in i hard fucking disagree with you bryant absolutely fucking viscerally disagree viscerally disagree the difference between modern and legacy is that modern is trying to fucking kill you modern is like burn 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 are are your matchups or, right or it's like burn to fairy belcher every deck the mo modern is like a really powerful turn three turn four format even the control decks are like turn two murktide regent deal with this if you can then i'm gonna start archmage charming you i think that where this where the curtain gets pulled back is are you talking about your brew as like some individual stepping in from their kitchen table with the the 60 to 100 cards that they have like with some coherent plan or are we talking about someone who understands the mechanics of the format trying to think of a new way to attack it because when i'm handed a, ch a brew challenge through my patreon and they're like i want to see you make spell stutter sprite and spell queller work together in the same deck in modern i'm like oh god here we go but if they're like same challenge but legacy i think legacy has a a more attackable core than modern does uh, like modern there are more decks and the power level it's lower power level in the abstract but like within the the context of the cards your opponents have like there's no force of will there's no swords to plowshares like shit's gonna hit and uh i would rather brew something wonky in legacy i think i'm gonna win more wonky brews in legacy than i am in modern i have the data to back that one up i have gotten my ass beat i have gotten my ass beat Every time I have played somebody's like off the wall bullshit thing in modern and I'm going infinite playing wacky bullshit in legacy. Do you feel like any of that is that you're a legacy player at heart and that you have so much more experience in legacy than modern? No, no, I'm just dead on turn four. Okay. I, I don't get off the ground. Like I, I was recently paid to play a deck that had like Iona's in it and it was like a mono white devotion deck I, I I didn't do anything in that entire league I I got paired against like burn and death shadow and then the flip all my permanents and turn them into other stuff deck that I'm forgetting right now the cascade thing right chaos warp world cascade world yeah yep that one Yep, that deck that we're all forgetting. Uh, yeah, and I, I I just ate it. All right, so tier lists can be useful. Just keep in mind where you're getting your data from, who you're getting your data from. Don't take it as definitive by any means. 
use it for generic groupings, that sort of thing might be be useful for you. Any final thoughts on this? The epic term is tier A. My final thought, uh, final repeated shout out to Matthew. I do actually look at these every time he posts them, and I'm excited to read them, and they do help me inform decisions because I trust the source. Yes. The website? Oh, God. That's so dead. Uh, but I appreciate yep, this the just joke. became a zombie movie. All right. Our second question here. I've been very impressed with the popper format panels moves with the format in terms of bands and unbands. You all know more about the format than I do. Have you been impressed? They seem to be empowered to really make moves in the format and respond deftly to player issues and card problems. So we've had some time to let this uh, this sink in. We've seen some bannings, some unbannings. What are you all thinking? I actually wrote a pretty hefty response to a similar question on our last episode on Reddit. I think the popper format panel, the PFP, is doing a terrific job. I do wonder if perhaps they're moving a little too quickly. If something is a clear problem, remove it in a month. Like, we got word of Underworld Breach in three weeks. You got to do what you got to do. I do think at some point, you're supposed to let decks or the metagame shift and move around each other. Because if you just always ban something whenever there's an issue, the format never gets to self-correct and that can be harmful in the long term. So am I okay with them banning Galvanic Relay? Yes. Like, I don't think that ultimately matters that much. But long term, I just hope that they go, hey, this might be power level appropriate. Maybe we let this one sit for three months, see if the metagame can shift around it and come back. I'm just afraid that if every decision is a month, it's not going to be great. On the flip side of that, they've also unbanned a card already. They're willing to do that. I think if they just like aggro ban Galvanic Relay, which is obviously a cracked card and <laughs> no one except Bryant Cook is going to miss it much. But like if they aggro ban that, then realize that like an entire section of the enfranchised player base stops showing up to challenges or league stop firing or this neat area of the the card pool is no longer accessible. I am, I believe I have faith that they will re-explore and unban in the future. Uh, I think they will continue clipping affinity cards until that deck's reasonable. And then if it becomes like a joke, then they'll give something back. I, 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 I trust them that they're going to land in the sweet spot of where the format is healthy and people can play cards that they want to play with. Yeah, um, and I think that's great. I love the initiative to unban Expedition Map. I think that's actually a great sign. I'd like to see more unbannings in Legacy, honestly. I know that's not a popular opinion because some people are like, survival should never come off the ban list. Why? Aside from reserveless stuff, but like, who cares about that? But I do like seeing that. I know, but there's also a bunch of popper players that are trying to get map banned again. They're building like these like egg storm decks that take like 20 minutes to win. I don't know. Like people like getting stuff banned or taking credit for stuff being banned so i don't know i guess it adds that aspect too yeah there's a popper streamer named Burbman who i used to watch all the time uh, he loves combotron that's like his bread and butter and i don't know what he's doing with his life but i saw the first tweet from him that i'd seen in memory when they unbanned expedition map and he had one of those early prototypes of that egg storm deck and then the format iterated on it further and it seems to be an exciting thing that's going on right now it's cool to see like format heroes like Burbman just emerge out of nowhere like oh yeah he's back and that's the panels doing like they are stimulating the brains of people who have been dormant by giving them a, a toy back uh, which is exactly the thing i just said about galvanic relay and in this case it's expedition map and we're seeing that in real time that stagnancy and like sending players into like a pseudo retirement state is, is is something that has been a huge problem with legacy players in the last couple of years, right? We've had a number of periods where it's like, okay, we all know what the best deck is. Okay, the gameplay is really stale. We're, we're just waiting for bands and we're waiting for bands and we're waiting for bands. And the popper format panel has made it so that popper is a dynamic, interesting and engaging format. I have enjoyed following that format just so, so much over the last couple of months now because it's always been interesting to me. It's always been fresh. And I also don't think we're going to continue to see this degree of degree of rapid changes. I think that the format panel has been established. They've kind of made their initial things. They're working on getting some stuff sorted out. And I imagine kind of like we'll kind of have a period of calm until something broken arises at some point. Right. It's a group of smart, invested people with a lot of information with and a lot of pent up wishes for the format. And we're also still just correcting MH2 impact on the format. And Kamigawa Neon Dynasty was also just a popper bomb. So the panel is in place 
maybe a little later than I wished for Modern Horizons 2, but just in time for Kamigawa. And there, there's a lot of movement quickly on this. Uh, remember when Pioneer was invented and there were bands every Monday? Like that's, we have not experienced that out of the panel and they are showing restraint. They're picking their spots and I think they're doing great. So kind of the low hanging fruit here that is alluded to in the second part of this question is like, hey, I'm sort of jealous and I want this type of panel for Legacy. Any ideas if it could be coming soon? Uh, this is this is something that the Legacy community has kind of talked about multiple times. And I think we've we've already talked about this a little bit on the cast. But now that we've had some time to see this format panel in action have your opinions changed at all you know do you want this for legacy if so what are what are your quick thoughts like one minute version i want to cite a tweet from aaron forsyth in the last week or two where uh, i forget what the context for the conversation was but he straight up tweeted nobody in R- in r&d builds for popper we don't design cards for popper we design comments for limited not for constructed Nobody in R&D plays Popper. We don't talk about it. We have no idea. That's why we gave it to the community. And I happen to know several really capable invested legacy players who are in play design right now. People I know from around the way, like Dan Musser, a really excellent legacy player. He's a designer over at Wizards now. There are people in place over there that care about legacy in a way that nobody over there cares about Popper. So that might be a barrier that needs to be overcome or it doesn't need to be overcome because it's already covered. Uh, that That's just a point that's floating out there, a, a recent development. Brian, you're going to have people with pitchforks out there like, fire Dan Musser, fire Dan Musser, because they want this legacy format panel. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, I, I got to remember now to keep names in the Patreon only. I'll allude to people in the, the public stuff. But if you want me to name names and talk shit, you got a Patreon up. I am skeptical. It's just because like, we all know, like if you're on legacy Twitter, you see a lot of crazy takes. I'm not going to cite any of them but there's people out there that want to ban 12 cards from legacy all at once to get back to 2018 legacy right before karn and narset hit it was the pinnacle golden age of legacy we need to return we're never going back ever we're never going back ever and i don't want to be a part of something I don't want to be a part of some 20 card ban. Like, I don't think that's realistic. And I wouldn't want to work with people that want that. So I'm pretty skeptical. Do I think it would be an improvement? Possibly. But I don't know if it's actually the best thing. Yeah, to piggyback your point, I saw a Twitter interaction just yesterday. I will not name names because this is the public side. And I like both of these people. But one person was straight up like, this deck in the current iteration of Legacy is the most toxic thing I've ever seen. And it makes me not want to play. And another person chimed in with like, yeah, I understand why your chosen deck would struggle in this matchup and why that would be frustrating for you. But Legacy is pretty great overall. And they just could not see eye to eye on that conversation and i i would not want to be on the panel who has to make legacy work for both of these people uh, the the take of i've been invested in this deck for 10 years and it means a lot to me that it's playable versus the take of i am deck agnostic and i will go where the meta puts me as long as legacy's healthy i'll make it work uh, it's just a lot to ask of regular civilians to make those decisions something else and and this is kind of one of my biggest concerns with this for legacy is in Popper, if your deck gets banned, like, oh, shit, you have to spend $10 on a new deck, or you have to spend $1 replacing four cards in your deck. It's not a big deal, right? Even if you're like a foil enthusiast, most of the time, your cards are relatively inexpensive. Please don't ban snuff out. Now. I am deep on those. If we have a legacy format panel, and if in their first two months they ban five cards from the format, that is costing individuals a large amount of money and potentially locking some people out of the format, right? Like if you just build a deck and your deck gets like banned out from under your feet unexpectedly, that is the ultimate feel bad as the player. And you might just go like, oh, yeah, maybe this format isn't for me anymore in a way that is like not necessarily the same in in Popper. So in addition to the other concerns, like there is a real financial concern concern here with the legacy side of the equation and putting that in the hands of an outside panel yeah like ban urza saga is like a 120 dollars proposition and ban lion's eye diamond is like a 2300 dollars proposition there's just like a lot to take into account there and I, I i'm not like assuming that i would be on this panel i would turn it down if it was offered like nobody's asked me i, I don't volunteer but like i i wouldn't want to make those decisions and i i, I wouldn't want any of my friends or colleagues or peers to make those decisions for me either. Like there's not a single person I trust with those decisions. 
Sorry, everyone. I would also turn it down for the record. I have seen some of the things that have been said about various popper format panel people. They're not kind. People on the internet are rude when they're anonymous, folks. There's, there's a takeaway from this section. To circle back away from our personal feelings, I don't know that Legacy needs this panel. Uh, based on Aaron Forsythe's stated criteria of, we don't know what the hell popper is. We don't design for it. We don't think about it. We gave it to you. That is simply not the case. Legacy might not be the prevailing thing in R&D. We know it's not, but there are legacy champions in the walls at Renton. All right. Um, why don't we take that as an end of this section, and let's talk about Kappa Cannoneer for a little while. So Kappa Cannoneer, and by extension, sort of like the eight-cast deck that it's in, have kind of been becoming the talk of the town in Legacy. There have been all sorts of pay-to-win jokes being made on Twitter, uh, and getting your hands on this card is, is pretty difficult right now. Do we need to read this card just to set up the... Like, I know it's been out for a little while, but if you don't play Magic Online, you're not on Twitter. Let me just read this one so we're all on the same page blue and five six mana artifact creature dash turtle warrior improvise your artifacts can help cast this spell each artifact you tap after you're done activating mana abilities pays for one ward four so when you target this when an, an opponent targets it with a spell or ability counter it unless they pay for whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control put a plus one counter on kappa cannoneer and it can't be blocked this turn and it's a 4-4 at base. But, right, Phil, it's actually a 5-5 five, five at is. base. It is. It triggers on itself. Right. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, let's let's just talk about this weekend, okay? So the, er the early results with this deck list have been strong. Traditional 8-cast won one of the legacy challenges this weekend. There were four copies of 8-cast in the top 16 of the SCG Indie 5K. And, like, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot for a deck that is not just like a normal blue cantrip deck. And Arkin in particular got third place in a challenge with a like eight cast painter hybrid deck. And I think there is a lot of room for exploration in this deck list or this macro archetype of Kappa Cannoneer artifact decks. We're still in the experimental stages where people aren't sure if they should be pay playing three or four Kappa Cannoneers, and you're not sure whether it's just that they couldn't find the fourth one online, or whether they think three is the right number. I would be DMing people to figure that out. If I were, like, very serious about this deck, I would find the player and be like, would you play four? Uh, that's worth knowing, for real. The user 2JJM has won three straight challenges that they've played in with this deck which is also something. One of those challenges was the smaller Saturday challenge, but then the other two were both Sunday challenges, which, you know, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. at the point where you're winning three fucking challenges in a row, it doesn't matter what size they are. Just like, deck is fucking good. Deck is fucking good. Be ready for it, folks. Yeah, like we, we talked about uh, a little bit, like win rates, we've talked about them in the past. We just said like Brian's hanging north of 70 on a heater right now 100 percent win rate like maybe they lost a match like in the swiss here or there but like we are that is outrageous and it doesn't matter how good you are that's like chess champion levels of dominance it, that's like a game with no variants at all and this player is just like nah the the wide open legacy format circle back to our tier list we're all playing legacy whatever someone's playing it different than the rest of us well they they did get to beat up on a bad storm deck in the finals in one of them yeah nice chat yeah sure yeah. but that that happens to everyone. The void, maybe. also this deck is like public enemy number two right now right like all right everyone knows blue red delver good deck has been good deck for a long time will continue to be a good deck for a long time but like beyond that people are preparing for this deck and to still just like rip off three challenge wins in a row when people know they have to be prepared for kappa that is a statement folks i wonder about that this deck attacks on so many different angles and there the angles are so specific as well is this everyone's punt matchup are people playing like four serenity at, or like three seeds of innocence just for this or is it like the the classic like this matchup is so bad and it would take so much to fix it that i'm just gonna punt it and hope i don't pair into it are decks actually designed to beat this or p do people just know about it at least from the combo perspective people have asked in the storm discord hey bryant should we play pulverize again for the eight cast matchup and i know not everything's about the epic storm unfortunately but if you think about how you would attack a deck like this from a combo perspective, they're a deck that plays Chalice of the Void. They have four main deck Force of Will. They have four Cyborg Force of Negation plus Fluster Storm. How often is your card 
like Serenity or Pulverize ever going to resolve or Hercules Recall. Not that I think Hercules is good against them, but people do side it in. It, are these reasonable things that are going to improve your matchup against the 4 Chalice 8 Force Flusterstorm deck? Like, it's actually really hard to resolve your hate against this deck, and on top of that, they have Urza's Con Saga Constructs kicking your teeth in. Like, the deck is super powerful. Yeah, I think this is a punt matchup. Like, you brought us the Epic Storm perspective from the, like, four-color Bant perspective. I'm playing a Pernicious Deed in my sideboard, uh, which gets everything except Kappa out of this deck. I have a Seeds of Innocence. I have a Mystic Sanctuary that can rebuy Seeds of Innocence, and I play two Dress Downs which can wipe up constructs and clear the way to plow a kappa. And I feel like I'm stacked for that matchup and I'm not going to do more. Like I'm not going to, unless I'm going to like FNM and there's going to be 16 people and I know three of them are on kappa cast. Maybe I'll pack two extra seeds of innocence just to make my point or load up on mystical disputes to keep that thing off the board. But like, I am not going to dedicate more than those like sort of natural overlap cards to a matchup like this. I like kappa cast petition to change the name. All right, let me just chime in from the DNT side. A lot of the DNT players are like, yeah, I'll play two Serenity in your 80 card Yorian Death and Taxes deck. That sort of change is not actually super meaningful. Like it, it'll it'll absolutely help when you draw it, but that's not going to swing the matchup super hard, right? And God, does Death and Taxes have problems answering a resolved Kappa Cannoneer. You have answers to it, but getting enough mana and having like your answer not be shut off by something like a Chalice along the way or not just being dead to other things along the way it it's tough and you can you can play something that's tutorable like a kataki and kataki's super cool until your opponent just like taps one land plays pays for their eight eight kappa cannoneer plays an artifact whacks you for nine and you die anyway like a lot of your hate cards don't solve all of the problems that this deck is presenting and maybe that's something that we should go into now yeah so what are the angles we have to shut off for this deck they are okay we got chalice of the void you're gonna need a lot of fingers there right i don't have enough fingers i'm gonna take off my socks and my pants and maybe we'll have enough digits to count on <laughs> so there's Chalice of the Void, and it is a an Ancient Tomb deck and a Mox Opal deck. Chalice on one can happen on turn one with some reliability. Uh, we got Urza Saga. We have the eight casts. Emery. Uh, Emery is an engine. The eight casts are there, the, the Thought Cast and the Thought Monitor. Thought Monitor ends the game pretty quick. Mall Drifter was a win con in standard for its entire time it was legal. It even sees modern play, and this one costs one. We have, I think I said Saga already, but Saga. The things that Saga poops out, like Retrofitter Foundry, Shadow Spear, turning your, your Saga tokens into trample monsters, and you can't race a 7-7 with lifelink. It can't be done. No deck can do it. And uh, then uh, Kappa Cannoneer. Surprise. You you and forgot Psy going Psy. wide yep. as well. Psy goes wide. And if you have Kappa, Psy also goes big. <laughs> like, uh, So let's, let's now categorize those. So we have Prison Element of Chalice of the Void. Turning off some number of your answers. So your answers need to avoid Chalice on one. They are going wide with Psy and Saga. And probably Retrofitter Foundry out of the saga i'm not sure if every list plays that or but i've seen it it's a thing so you got to go wide against artifacts one one flying artifacts and go wide and tall against xx constructs and in the middle there's the five five plus x unblockable ward monster and emery is drawing cards replacing the chalice or whatever it is emery does every turn while also making Kappa re-unblockable and larger every turn by replaying the artifacts. Backed by force of will, force of negation, and force Backed restore. by force of will. Yeah. Okay. How do we beat this? Go. What, what's the weak spot? Supreme Verdict. Okay. So, <laughs> so the thing is, though, like, even a Supreme Verdict doesn't answer everything, right? Like, use Supreme Verdict. Your opponent still has a bunch of divinations. They still have a chalice on board. Uh, like, you can you can clear the creatures. That's fantastic. Urza some Saga of the things pops that are right. plaguing yeah. you. Yeah, like, or they play an Emery the next turn and they start just getting all of their, their stuff back. And, like, this is the problem with a lot of cards. A Meltdown is awesome versus this deck, right? But your Meltdown is probably not killing Kappa Cannoneer. Your Meltdown doesn't kill the Psy and the Emery. Your Null Rod is great. It stops so much stuff. Doesn't kill that Kappa Cannoneer. Doesn't stop that artifact from growing at each turn and making it unblockable. Doesn't stop you from improvising. It turns off Mox Opal's mana ability, but improvising is an ability of Kappa. Yeah, I played a Kappa League last night, and let me tell you, tapping my Lotus Petal for mana without sacrificing it is just like chef's kiss. That feels so good. Right. 
Yeah. And so like there's plenty of playable cards that do stuff against this deck, but very few of them are like uh, Seeds of Innocence where they just like nuke all the artifacts and just answer almost everything. And even that, that still leaves Size and Emery's on board. And this is one of the strengths of this deck. Are you going to bring in Graveyard Hate to fight against Emery when there's four Emery's in the deck? No, the answer is probably not, right? but that means you might be leaving one of this deck's angles just completely unchecked. Right, and if you are planning on, if you're not bringing in Graveyard Hate, then you're probably planning on removal. So Swords to Plowshares, cleaning up Emery on turn one feels nice and clean, but what if they lead on Chalice? What if they lead on Chalice and Emery? Is that Plow going to keep up against Kappa in the mid-game? In a deck, like an Uro deck, it might. If you're gaining life, buying time, putting extra lands into play, five mana is completely attainable from an Uro deck. Like you can plow a Kappa. Is your deck something like Death and Taxes that's playing lands fair and square? Are you committing to never activate Wasteland because you're going to need that to pay Ward? Uh, there's considerations there. Uh, if you're a saga build of Death and Taxes, which I think most of them are at this point, I don't even know if that argument is still happening, but- It's complicated is the short version. I, I know it's complicated. I, I, I'll leave it alone. But like Urza Saga is a land that goes away eventually. When you play Urza Saga on turn three in your Death and Taxes deck, you're committing some amount of mana over the next couple turns. Like you want to make your constructs, you want to get your value, then that land's going to go away and that's one less mana you have for ward. There are so many things to consider here that uh, it, it's it's nuts. Like so many things are are so many moving parts. Important question. Like what is the choke point? Like what or what is the natural predator here? Uh, what deck just beats this? From what I understand is a lot of the depths decks tend to be decent against it. I, I don't have experience in those matchups. It's something I've been told. But I would like to point out, Brian, you mentioned Pernicious Deed. I think Deed is actually one of the best cards against this deck. The problem is getting it to resolve. But once it's resolved, it's pretty good. But I think something that we haven't thought about is what happens when these Kappa Cannoneer decks evolve to beating Deed? Because we haven't even gotten to that stage in the game. What happens when they start boarding in a needle to get with their Saga to then stop your pernicious Deed? Like, what happens then? Deck space isn't free, right? You know this extremely well, especially building wish boards for as long as you have. Like, deck space is premium if they're gonna put pithing needle in their 75 to answer deed that opens up something else like some other box goes unchecked in that world uh, in order to put pithing needle in your deck to answer deed sometimes they're gonna draw the pithing needle when they have chalice on one in play it starts to create awkward overlap also like we talked about how canon like kappa eight cast is a punt matchup for a lot of decks because it's like i can't address this so i won't how many decks play pernicious deed it's like literally just dark band and only like like i i guess i don't actually know how much influence i have over the the evolution of that archetype but i think i sold pokemoki on it he may have sold me but like i don't know is that stock or is that just something me and pokemoki do what deck can support deed like you need to be a deck that is pushing forward on mana because deed costs a bazillion to actually use, especially if you're planning on deeding for three or more to clear out a Cyan and Emery. It has to be in an Uro shell. You have to survive that turn a lot of times, right? Like you, right. you play it out, you hope to survive one turn. Yeah, so like you have to get to six mana to do it all at once, or you have to invest in it and then untap. And most decks can't do that. Also, we haven't talked about this, but that Ottawara land or whatever it's called is also bullshit, right? Because they <laughs> yeah. can just like floop your answer out of play and kill you or protect one of their things with it. Uh, like, all right, you finally wiggled into the spot where you get the Kappa Cannoneer. Like, sad trombone noises as they just floop it back to their hand and recast it for one mana. Yeah, that's pretty twisted. Um, I do think shutting off the card draw can be pretty good if you can get that down early agreed like if you're a blue deck and you can force the first play they do and then get like a turn three narset or hole breacher or something and stop the gas from continuing the coming you might be able to play a reasonable one for one game versus your opponent and a decent number of the control decks these days are are trying out like days undoing combo in some variety so like you're already playing those effects they'll be good in the matchups where you have them right 
Yeah, the control move to Days Undoing, whether you're playing one copy or three, that incentivizes deck building that naturally overlaps with eight cast. I actually just ordered another uh, Japanese alternate art Narset because I only had three because younger sweet summer child me was like, why would I need four of this card? And it's just a four of in many control decks right now. And so I ordered those four to six of that effect in a lot of blue decks right now, just naturally. Another card that a lot of blue decks are playing anyway is Dress Down that clears out the Saga tokens. It makes Kappa targetable with some clever timing. You can kind of time walk your opponent. If you cast Dress Down in your own end step, it won't die until the next next end step, which is your opponent's. So in your own end step, you Dress Down, wipes out the Saga tokens. Maybe you plow a Cannoneer at the same time. Your opponent untaps. Their Emery is already turned off. Their Psy is already turned off for the turn, and they don't get to do that in that turn cycle. So there are some like tempo plays that you can make with cards that are already getting played, but you do need to back up the <laughs> the Dress Down. Like you need the plow two, or else you're just like turning their five five unblockable grows into just a regular 5-5 which is still huge for legacy and i think these control decks attacking from multiple different angles is like the way that they can potentially beat eight cast so like bryant as a resident combo player if someone comes in like fighting you and you know their plan is just mind break traps it's much easier to fight than if they're playing like a mind break trap a null rod and a meddling mage right when there's multiple slightly overlapping pieces that attack from different angles, that's when it's harder for you, right? 100%. If the eight cast deck knows that it only has to fight against your pernicious deed or whatever, or they know they only need to stop your things that are preventing their draws, they can save their force of wills for those effects. But all of a sudden when it's like, oh, you have to be watching out for my null rod and my meltdown, like obviously that's a bad pairing, but like when you oh, have no, to that's be a perfect from two different felt. angles like that... <laughs> All right, when you have to be watching out for like the Narset and the Meltdown, now your your counterspells have more valid targets. Now you have to be pickier about the battles that you choose to fight. So something I'd like to mention is there's also secondary effects of this 8-cast deck doing very well. And that's, there's less Null Rod seeing play. People are cutting their Null Rods and then they're playing more Meltdowns, more Seeds of Innocence, those sort of cards. People have started to recognize this. And Storm has done very well over the last month. So Brian has talked about my heater that I talked about in the uh, Patreon exclusive part of this podcast. But Ant has been doing well in the Saturday challenges in particular. So with less null rods and less dedicated Storm hate because people are playing more versatile cards, it's having secondary effects on the format. And now people are asking, well, maybe we go back to playing one null rod and then one dedicated card for eight cast. So we're seeing a small shift there. At least I am. And I think if you are playing a random other artifact deck that just like happens to have Urza Saga or happens to have Chalice or something like that, you are absolutely taking blowback from this like eight cast Kappa deck right now. I was playing a league with some artifact deck and I just got eaten alive by some card that I thought my opponent had like no business having in their deck just because like they were just explicitly preparing for this matchup. Yeah, we've said Seeds of Innocence a number of times in this episode. Like, it's just a, a normal card. Who knew what that card did four months ago? Like, Oh, I absolutely did not. Yeah, no. I mean, I am a, a straight-up boomer. Like, I was already playing Magic when that card was printed for the first time, and I'd probably seen it before, but, like, the fact we can just say Seeds of Innocence in regular Legacy parlance in this podcast without having to explain what this card does is a huge sign of the times. Yeah, Urza Saga is real. Kappa is real. Eight cast is real. Be ready for this stuff. Yeah. One thing that I want to hit before we wrap this up, we didn't really talk about counter spells. Those are powerful against Kappa. We talked about how difficult it is to remove and play. We talked about non-targeting answers like Supreme Verdict, but uh, Red Blast, Pyroblast, that Mamma Jamma, that overlaps with Chalice in a way that you don't like. But if you're a prismatic ending deck that also has red, then you're, you can, there's a plan there. And a card that I've been really impressed with and frustrated by lately is Mystical Dispute. That is a three uh, mana value card that you frequently cast for one. Dodges Chalice, clips the Kappa, clips the Psy, clips the Thought Monitor a lot of the time. Uh, that is an extremely potent card in Legacy right now. And I actually think it's main deckable in non-red decks. Like if you are Dark Bant or something like that, or just three color Bant that doesn't get access to Pyroblast, uh, I, I really like 
mystical dispute as a as a magic card yeah i I ran into one of those main deck in the past league or two that i played there's a secret mode on mystical dispute where you can pay three mana to cast mana leak and the spell doesn't have to be blue it's insane you can just like counter solitude with that thing in a mid game okay go ahead brian i know that doomsday plays it specifically for hull breacher and they've always been like hey it's the blue you know blast effect you know what i mean like pyroblast red blast all those it's essentially just like blues version of it for other blue decks which is kind of nice and you were talking about that with your dark band deck so i think the real nice thing here is there's a number of these karn i shouldn't say karn whole breacher decks if they're control decks or even just the dedicated days and doing decks now where having mystical dispute is super valuable at clipping an end step whole breacher or stopping the wheel effect something along those lines because most people aren't going to see a card like mystical dispute coming yeah and especially in a game one situation it's like even if you know about this card even if you know it sees play if your bant opponent just has a blue mana up you got to think about it on the topic of like wacky ideas i played against a blue control deck that was playing karn the great creator main deck i presume (laughs) yeah i know just watching brian's face there was priceless they they had a very small package like i don't know if it was like three sideboard cards or something like that to play a couple of karns to just like try and get a leg up in the eight cast matchup i think that's like maybe a little off the deep end in terms of ideas but like i respect the energy that's there yeah we're wrapping this up but i remember when reanimator when we had mystical tutor and entomb briefly the reanimator mirror the only thing you had to worry about when you played reanimator was the mirror so we were playing cards like nether spirit and dryad arbor where it's like you don't fight over the entomb you fight over the reanimate so then you can reanimate their reanimate thing and you just entomb nether spirit it arrives immediately and then you fetch dryad arbor and just clunk them for three and there's so much counter magic in the mirror that like that's all that happens and that's a real win condition and that's inbred af but like karn in your eight cast deck there we are if you think that eight cast is only going to lose to eight cast it it might get weird out there i think ultimately this eight cast deck is likely to become a dredge of the format where it's probably going to be kept in check by by people trying to beat it but on the weekends where people skimp on their hate for this card like holy hell is this deck just going to be an absolutely awesome choice for when artifact hate declines except like we talked about when dredge is hated out we're talking ley lines rest in pieces etc when kappa's hated out it's like eh, a seeds of innocence it's a very different animal to, to target hate with and that's what makes it so strong yeah kappa cannoneer by design is hard to remove so hating on kappa specifically is hard and that settles the debate that Blastoise is the only starter worth picking. That is just not right. true. Charmander I mean, for life. Uh, before we go and launch into an entire Pokemon-based spinoff episode, uh, why don't we we call it here? Anyone have any closing words of wisdom, or shall we just leave it on some angry Pokemon thoughts? If you are mad about our Pokemon opinions, please take it to our Patreon. We will talk at length in Patreon DMs about what the best starting Pokemon is, and the answer is Squirtle, and there is no other answer. So if you have thoughts about that, bring it up in the Patreon. We'll see you there.